1: Found financial food for thought. My name is Mark Donnelly, and Carrie Waddell has the weekend off. She's traveling on this blistery cold winter weekend. Hopefully, she'll be safe and arrive home soundly. Wow, well, winter! I'm taping the show on Friday the 13th. So I've got my unlucky numbers for tonight's drawing of the $1.3 billion mega millions because that's everybody's planned retirement, right? Or plan for retirement. Is that what you're hoping for? <laughs> will save your retirement? It certainly would save a lot of people's retirement. So uh, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But wow, weekend winner. You know, a little huga music here to get everybody in that shut-in, that cozy world. A good weekend to stay inside and just in time for the NFL wild card games. It's also the music... The soothing music i use whenever i play an excerpt from federal reserve chairman jerome powell
0: i use my comments uh, focusing on the u.s context and i'll address three main points first uh, the federal reserve's monetary policy independence is an important and broadly supported institutional arrangement that has served the american public well second the Fed must continuously earn that independence by using our tools to achieve our assigned goals of maximum employment and price stability and by providing transparency to facilitate understanding and effective oversight by the public and their elected representatives in Congress. Third, we should stick to our knitting and not wander off to pursue perceived social benefits that are not tightly linked to our statutory goals and
1: authorities. And... and You know, one thing I like about Fed Chair Powell, and and also why it is often said, don't fight the Fed, because he's so distinct and every word has meaning when he gives a speech. He's not reading from a teleprompter, he is reading from notes, but you could, every word has meaning. And that's why it's so difficult, I think, to listen live, because as he goes through his points, it's hard to capture actually what he's saying. But so let's go back cuz those three points I think is a good summation of what the Federal Reserve is all about and and how he, he it's a clear goal and objective and why they're going to stay the course. Meaning again, don't fight the Fed. When they tell you they're going to do something, chances are they are going to do it. Or vice versa, if they say they're not going to do something, (laughs) chances are they're not going to do it. Even though, again, they'll always say that they're data dependent. And specifically, if we're referring to what their interest rate hike is going to be in February, is it going to be 50 basis points, 25 basis points, or perhaps no? uh, You know, are they going to pivot and start cutting rates? I don't think in February, but, you know, some people still think that'll happen this year. But you, when you when you listen to him, though, do you see a difference? For example, compare that to our politicians. Compare that to Vice President Kamala Harris's word salad that she serves up every time she's in front of a microphone, or even President Biden when he goes off teleprompter. And you know, compare it to it. So let me go through Powell's three points. His first point: the Federal Reserve monetary policy independence, meaning that they don't listen to politicians. They are not influenced by politicians um, or anyone else globally, for that matter. Um, So the Federal Reserve's monetary policy independence is an important and broadly supported institutional arrangement that has served the American public well. So the Federal Reserve has been doing this for a while, right? And, And maybe they're getting better at it all the time. His second point. The Federal Reserve must continuously earn that independence by using our tools to achieve our assigned goals. And those, and he's very specific with his goals, with the Federal Reserve's goals. Maximum employment. Well, there's an argument that they've reached that with the latest unemployment handle at a 3.5%. Okay, and secondly, price stability. And of course, what he means by that is low inflation. All right. And by providing transparency, okay, another important part, by providing transparency to facilitate an understanding and efficient oversight by he manages here the public first, meaning that his his duty is to the public, you know, and then he says, and their elective representatives in Congress. So, you know, clearly the, and of course, the third one, he comes back with a less formal definition, more of a American, or I don't know how old that, that, that saying is, uh, we should stick to our knitting. Okay. And not wander off to pursue perceived social benefits that are not tightly linked to our statutory goals and authority meaning again they're not responsible for for uh, making the whole world better okay they're they and and but they are responsible for america's um, you know dual mandate maximum employment and price stability so we'll see so how is their medicine working well we got the cpi readings this week okay And it was clearly in trend saying that inflation has indeed peaked. All right. Now, whether you look at headline CPI or core CPI, core being, you know, taking out food and energy, and whether you look at annual year over year or even more a current monthly 30-day monthly trend, all right. So let's start with headline year over year. So it came in at 6.5%. Okay, much better than the previous year over year of 7.1%. And we can also say that now looking at the trend from when it was called early on that June of 2022 was peak inflation. So the the reading, the annual year over year in June was 9.1%. In July, 8.5%. In August, 8.3%. September, 8.2%. October, 7.7%. November, 7.1%. And now December, 6.5%. So clearly that indicates a decreasing trend and that maybe June was the peak. Now, how about if we look over month over month, okay? So uh, for December, it came in at 0.1%, matching the previous Novembers of 0.1%, which was lower than the previous September, October numbers, which were 0.4%. Okay, Uh, going back to June, the month of June, it was one point three percent. So we've gone from June's one point three percent monthly trend to December's zero point one percent. All right. Now what if we look at core? Okay, and Federal Reserve, again, they they concentrate more on core because they admit or they keep reminding us that there's nothing in their monetary policy that can really control global oil prices and or global food prices, because there's so many global things going on that are completely beyond their control. Right, So they tend to look more at core inflation. All right, so core CPI. So for the December year-over-year came in at 5.7%, better than the previous November year-over-year of 6.0%. Now going back to June, okay, June, it was 5.9%. July was 5.9%. August, that kind of peaked up a little bit, 6.3%. September up to 6.6%. Maybe perhaps that was the peak for core CPI. But then since September, October 6.3, November 6.0, December 5.7. And on a month over month, um, core CP, uh, piece CPI came in at 0.3, tad lower, a tad worse than the previous 0.2, um, but better. Than the previous October's of uh, or uh, previous September's, which might have that have been the peak of zero point six. So maybe uh, core peaked out maybe in September. Now, it doesn't mean I still think it, it's going to be a jagged peak. I, I don't think you're going to see inflation go immediately all the way back down to the Federal Reserve's target two percent. But it does indicate that perhaps their medicine is working. And so far, have they been able to do this without causing too much pain? In other words, can they still navigate a softish landing and try to get inflation in order without causing a deep U.S. recession? All right. So once again, you're listening to Financial Food for Thought. My name is Mark Donnelly, and I'm the president of the Estate Planning Team Incorporated Um, The state plan team has been helping Ohio families build custom financial plans for over 36 years. We are an Ohio registered fiduciary planning firm. That means we have to act in our client's best interest. If you would like more information about our firm, please visit our website. You can find us at Financial Food for Thought. That's the name of the radio show, financialfoodforthought.com. Just one string, you know, financialfoodforthought.com. On there, you can find financial articles. There's some uh, calculators on there. You can also link to these radio show podcasts. So the radio station keeps a good bank of these radio uh, programs. And through our website, financialfoodforthought.com, you can go and click on a button, find the podcast, and listen to them at any time at your convenience, 24-7. On our website, you can also sign up for a free, no-obligation consultation. This can be done in person or, you know, at this time of year or certainly because of the the the, the flus and the viruses and the, certainly the coronavirus and, and all the other uh, diseases at this time. You may be more comfortable just doing those by telephone or, you know, you, if you don't want to get out and drive in winter weather that we're looking out the window this morning, <laughs> I can see. Um, so we can do those in person or by telephone. Uh, So if you would like a free consultation, you can sign up for one on our website. Or if you can just call us, our phone number is 440-239-2090. Again, that's 440-239-2090. Just leave a message and uh, someone will get back to you on uh, Monday. And we are open on Monday. I know it's a national holiday. But uh, typically, we have a very busy Martin Luther King Day because a lot of our clients have the day off. And so they they make appointments to come in. So we're always um, busy. Um, So perhaps the Federal Reserve's medicine is working and they will be able to navigate it. Or, again, you might not believe that that they'll be successful in that. And do you think we are headed for a U.S. recession? So you could ask yourself, well, what do we do? Do I, Mark, do I need to be worried about a recession? Well, I guess that depends. And But there are three basic steps that we always bring to our client's attention is what are three simple things that you can do or remember to try to do if you are concerned or you want to protect your family from the next economic downturn. Whether it be a recession or a a stock market crash or something else, Um, and the first thing is, you know, maintain an adequate cash reserve. All right, and that protects you. In other words. If you did have an unplanned expense, or maybe it's even a planned expense, maybe it's a new automobile you're planning on purchasing. Um, and you it, 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 So when you were getting ready to make that purchase, or that purchase was thrown upon you in an emergency situation, and you didn't want to sell your stocks low because they were in a decline because of the economic downturn, you wouldn't have to. You could rely on your cash reserve, And give time for your stocks to come back. Meanwhile, as long as you're still holding those positions, you're still collecting any dividends that those positions may be uh, paying. So that's, that's one thing, you know, maintaining an adequate cash reserve. The other thing is very important too is if you are still working. And because one of the main things that we are concerned about in recessions is that people lose their jobs, companies lay off. Companies close, okay? So that's a risk perhaps to you. Now, if you're retired, you're not worried about a recession from that standpoint. You don't have a job to lose in a recession, okay? But if you're still working... Yes, that, you know, so again, having a cash reserve would protect you in that situation as well. If you were laid off, you have some cash money there to, to supplement the loss of wages until, you know, you, and then you're going to start collecting unemployment and, and either they're going to, the company's going to bring you back to work or you're going to go out and find another job. Um, the second thing is, Review your risk allocation. So uh, on this show, even if you go back to last week's podcast, I'm kind of looking at the 60 40 portfolio. We know how disastrous that was as an allocation for 2022, down 16 some percent. It hasn't happened that often. Um, now I'm, I say you can make a case that the 60 40 isn't dead. It was certainly dead for 2022. But the, the question becomes, what is, what, how much risk do you need to be okay? Do you need the historical return of a 60-40 portfolio to be okay, or could you get by with less risk than that? You know, And, and so that's the idea of, of saying, well, how much risk do you need to be okay? Also, if your allocation is out of whack, let's say you were targeting to be 50-50, 50% growth, 50% fixed, but because of... Prior to 2022, you had very strong market returns and relatively low fixed side that you might have got out of at whack. Your allocation, you know, you're trying to be 50-50, and it may, actually might have creeped up higher on the risk side because of good performance in prior years. So you you bring that back. You lock in those gains, right? And that's what we saw a lot of professional investment advisors doing in 2022. Um, or actually in in 2021, in in anticipation that 2022 might have been a down year. So, you know, we saw, you know, very large capital gains, you know, realized capital gains on our clients' 2021 tax returns, right? And that's because their investment advisors were doing exactly that. They were locking in those gains before, um, in anticipation of if they didn't want to lose them in what actually did happen in 2022, which was the, the, the drop in the markets. Then the third thing you can do to protect your family a recession or you know is to build a plan R. In other words, you, if you've built a financial plan that shows you're going to be okay, and meaning that let's call that plan A, meaning that you've built a model looking out for the rest of your life, and maybe you if you're still working, you penciled in your or target a put a stake in the ground when you're going to retire, and then you've also then made assumptions about your retirement income, whether that be pension, Social Security, what have you, and then also what what your expenses are going to be in the future with adequate inflation rates. And you've got your plan A saying, hey, lo, you're going to be okay. You can retire at this point. You can spend this amount of money. You can do this amount of travel based on inflation and taxes and everything else. You're not running out of money before life. But perhaps that model did not uh, uh, have built in a higher inflation that we've seen. In other words, it may have not built in a six and a half percent inflation rate for 2022. Or maybe you're in the camp of saying it's going to be another year of five or six percent inflation in 2023. And maybe we're not going to get back down to what my plan was using for an inflation rate of maybe three, three and a half percent, something like that. So you may want to build a plan R, you know, R being maybe for recession or recovery, saying that I'm going to take a worst case assumption, a worst case scenario, and assume a higher embedded inflation for a couple of years. And or I'm also going to assume an economic downturn, meaning that I'm not going to assume that uh, my investments are going to return five or 6%. I'm going to assume they're going to lose 10, 15%. And then the next year, there may be 0% gain. And then maybe the next year, as we come out of the recession, maybe it's two and a half to three percent gain. And then maybe by the next year, we're fully recovered and we're back to our normal, you know, five or six percent, something along those lines. That's what we can do in our modeling. And that's what we've, you know, have, have, uh, our, what we've been doing for our clients for 36 years, showing them that, yeah, it's, it's getting a long range perspective helps you make a decision today. And it's hard to run 30 years of cash flows and taxes and inflation. It's hard to run those numbers in your head. And so what we can do with the modeling is try to project that out and then play the what if games and then, you know, determine, hey, if we do have this economic downturn and let's say it's 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 in corresponding to the same year I was planning on retiring and and now, I you know, and starting a withdrawal from my nest egg. And now I'm going to have to do that withdrawal in in the first year that we're going to recession and the market's down 20 percent. Okay, how, you know, the sequence of returns, we call that, you know, how does that affect? Does that mean I'm going to, is my plan still working to age 90? Or does it mean, no, if that happens, my plan is no longer working to age 90. Okay, well, in either case, it leaves you in a decision-making mode. Because if your plan is still working to age 90, you're not panicking. Now, let's say it's no longer working to age 90. Okay, so what do I need to do? Do I need to work longer? Well, how much longer? A year? 6 months? Does it mean I can get out of the rat race and leave my 60-hour week work and 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 t- pick up a part-time gig? Something that I'd like to do, but not and I'm only do it twenty third hour you know, 20 to 30 hours a week, something like that. Um, does it mean that I can't, you know, do five Hawaii trips in my retirement? I can only do three? Or does it mean that if I've got a ten thousand dollar travel budget, I have to knock that down, not to zero. Maybe I have to knock that down to seven thousand, eight thousand? You know, those types of, of 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 assumption changes to manipulate and say, okay, now am I back on track? That's the power of good financial planning. And that's what we've been helping clients do for the last thirty-six years. All right, so Speaking of the markets, how is the (laughs) January barometer going? So if you listen to our show, we've been doing the show many, many years, uh, often I talk about the January barometer. That's where you're looking at one of the indexes. I'm always going to use the S&P 500 and saying how the S&P 500 goes in early year, January, so goes the year in total for the gain or loss. Now, it starts, of course, with the Santa Claus rally. And you've probably heard of that. The Santa Claus rally is defined as the last five trading days of the year plus the first two trading days of the new year. Okay? So it's the last five trading days of the previous year and the first two trading days of the new year. That's what is the Santa Claus rally. And the... Theory behind that or the barometer or why people look at that is that, you know, in the eight occasions since 1929, when the index has gained at least 1% in that seven day period, the Santa Claus rally has produced a gain 100% of the time with the average gain of about 3.3%. So that 100% held since 1929 until... You got it last year, all right, um, because the Santa Claus rally, so if you go back to uh, 2020 to 2021, the Santa Claus rally was actually 1%, almost, you know, that, that that's that break even. And the year ended, the 2021 year ended with the S&P up 26.89%. Now, but if you look at the 2021 to 2022 Santa Claus rally, okay, it was up 1.43%, but yet the 2022 S&P ended up being down 19.44%. So that apparently, if the author of this article is correct, that's the first time since 1929 that the Santa Claus rally failed. All right, now, how about this year, the 2022 to 2023? Well, the Santa Claus rally, although positive in those seven days, the, was still less than a 1% gain. It was about 0.80. So they would say that's you know not going to bode well for that high statistic of saying that the year will do well. But also, besides the Santa Claus rally, then people sometimes look at the first week of January, the first five trading days of the new year. And some say that's a better January barometer. So how did that, how does that done? Well, again, in 2021, the first five days came back with a 1.83%. Okay. So, and then of course, as I mentioned, the 2021 year ended up year 26.89%. In 2022, Okay, the first although the Santa Claus rally was 1.43%, the first week in January was down 1.87%. Okay? So that maybe as a better indicator that ended up the year being down. Okay? How about this year, 2023? Well, during the first 5 days, the S&P 500 is up 1.4%. Okay, so that's leading back to saying, "Okay, is it going to be good? Uh is is this year going to be positive?" Now, other people just look at the month of January itself as the January barometer. And of course, we're not done yet this year with January, but as of the taping of this show, everything still looks good. Uh you know, the the S&P is up 3.74% um you know you know going that's fine we already had the so if that holds true for the month that means that the first week in january was up 1.4 percent if the month of january is up you know and the only thing that's slightly missing is the santa claus rally only came in at 0.8 instead of that benchmark of one percent gain. um now how about in the previous years okay so for 2022 The month of January was down 5.26%. I'm sure many of you remember that, how bad last year started off. And so, and then the previous year, 2021. Even though the S and P ended up twenty six point eight percent positive for the month of January, it was down one point one one percent. So I don't know. Maybe look at two out of three in any one year and say if two out of the three are indicating a positive or negative, uh, you know, reading, then that's so how the year goes. Um, we'll see. Um, all right. You no, know, there's a lot of tax talk at this time a year too um and i i always there, there's so much tax well so the tax season is beginning so as of um so the irs announced that they'll start accepting tax returns january 23rd um and you have this year until April 18th, uh, the way the calendar works. Um, now, one of the things that we see is that many people are interested in when or how quickly they can file their return because they want to get their refund. And, I, you know, I've talked about this. I call it, you know, I think they're suffering from what I call TRD. And TRD is Tax Refund Distortion. Meaning that I'm not big on getting, you know, planning that you're getting big refunds every year from the IRS, from the government, from the Treasury. I mean, when you get a refund, it's not like the government's giving you new money. They're just giving your own money back that you pay them without needing to pay them. And chances are they're not going to pay you any interest uh, when they pay it back to you. Now, typically, the IRS tries to get the refund checks out in less than 21 days. All right. Um, but that's not always the case. It certainly wasn't the case during the RONA shutdown. Um, now, if they are so delinquent in getting the refunds, they will pay interest back to you. All right. Um, but remember, that interest is considered taxable income to you. So if you did receive a higher refund in a previous year than you were expecting, you need to be on the lookout in your mail to see if you're getting some fan mail from the IRS, which is in the form of a 1099 interest, meaning this is the amount of interest that they paid you on last year's refund that you've got a report on this year's taxable income. Don't forget that. All right. Now, some of the other things the IRS is saying, and of course, the acting IRS commissioner now is Doug O'Donnell, you know, because Chuck Reddick is gone. They haven't named a permanent IRS commissioner. So Doug's got the, you know, is carrying the baton right now. Um, And one of the things is they're still saying that the other thing that can slow down the refund process, if you're expecting a refund, is they have to do additional review, especially if, uh, you know, they're trying to... Uh, you know get rid of all the tax fraud going all the stolen identities that these that these crooks are doing they're stealing americans identities and filing false returns just to get a quick refund you know and that's been a big big problem since they've gone to electronic filing and and the irs has not got that under control yet um, as much as they would like to um, so if you're claiming the earned income tax credit or an additional child tax credit um, the IRS says they're not even going to be able to send out your refunds before mid-February. They're saying, um, but that that's not the only situation that that I'm saying why I, I, I'm against getting refunds because I think the the taxpayer who's who's rushing to get their tax return done because they want that refund. Well, when you rush to get things done, there's a tendency to make mistakes. All right. And that's we've seen problems with that in the past. Um there and and, and there's also, you know, speaking of the I, the mess at the IRS, you, you know, they're not even done f- processing all the 2021 tax returns yet. <laughs> Okay, they're still saying, I think there's close to 2 million unprocessed individual returns. Okay. A lot of those may be 2021 returns. Some of those may actually have been back years returns as well. Um, And IRS saying of that 2 million, about 1.5 million require error corrections or other special handling. Okay. Okay. Now, so this leads to another potential issue that I can think of, because if let's say (laughs) if, if you're actually filing your 2022 tax return before the IRS has actually processed your 2021 tax return, that could be a problem, especially if they're making a correction to it. Okay, especially if that correction changes the amount of tax liability that you actually owed and or the refund you were expecting. Um, you can imagine, right? In, in other words, so so now you, you filed your 2022 return thinking your 2021 return was accepted as filed. And maybe that maybe instead of the refund, you ask for a credit carry forward in this example. So you expecting to have this credit carry forward that you're applying it now to your 2022 tax, not knowing that the IRS is making an adjustment and maybe reducing that. So now you've got two incorrect years, 2021 and 2022. The other thing, too, is what I caution by filing too early, is if you have... Material amounts in non-qualified investment brokerage accounts, you know, investments that are earning interest, dividends, capital gains. All right, because a lot of times you may get a ten ninety nine b, you know, or a ten ninety nine interest or a ten ninety nine dividend, you know, or, or the ten ninety nine that shows the the realized, you know, sales that you made during the year, and maybe it also maybe showing the realized gains that you have to report. And you may be getting that in February. And so you're quickly trying to file your return because you're getting, you want that refund back. But then you get a corrected 1099 in the mail in March. Well, now you're stuck because you've already filed the return. So now you're responsible for having to file an amended return and you get into the compliance and the cost of doing that. So these are all things why we you know we try to talk to our clients. Now I know getting that refund is a nice feeling. But if you're really that concerned about getting it as quickly as possible as you can get it, do you understand that you it's you're the one who's doing it? If you really don't want to wait around for the refund, then don't be more active in your tax planning. All right, and don't and and make the adjustments so you're not waiting around for a big refund. Coordinate that with you if you're using a a tax preparer, um, and try to you know get a handle on that. And I, I think also people suffer from TRD when they think that somehow it's more important to get a bigger refund you know i remember when <laughs> i remember i was talking on this radio show when when president trump got his tax cuts and jobs acts uh passed in 2017 and it lowered everybody's individual tax rates and there was all this you know hoopla about saying is it really going to lower everybody's taxes so after the first year after the law was in effect and they they review and there were a lot of headline stories say and and the stories headlines were saying, Oh average refunds are lower than the previous year meaning in me, their meaning is that the, the 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 tax cuts weren't working and and I'm thinking to myself the it, it, you don't you shouldn't be looking at the refund all right um your refund has very The size of your refund has very little or nothing to do with your actual tax liability, okay? You know, what your personal income tax is. It has nothing to do with the size of the refund. It has everything to do with how much taxable income you created in any given year and how much estimated taxes you had paid in, either through withholding or quarterly estimates, right? So, see if I can explain this. Okay, here's a simple you know question. All right, which would you rather have? An annual tax liability of $2,000 and you're getting a refund of $700, or B, let's say that's A, or B an annual tax liability of $1,500 but you're only getting a $10 refund. So, let me propose that question again. Which would you rather have? A an annual tax liability of $2000 but you get a refund of 700 or b an annual tax liability of 1500 but you only get a refund of $10 well if you answered a then perhaps you're suffering from TRD as well and you need to make a call in and get a consultation with us so i can help you explain that and you can call us at 440 239 Twenty ninety. That's four four zero two three nine two zero nine zero. Or visit us on our website financialfoodforthought.com. dot and, and just one final thought too about the tax refunds. So during the fat last few years, <laughs> you know, decades, the a lot of our clients or you know people across the country were saying, well. I'm not worried about the fact that I'm getting a refund with no interest because there are no short-term good rates anyways. In other words, if I had the money myself, I wouldn't I would just been sitting in my bank account and it wouldn't have been earning any interest anyways. Well, I don't know that's not the case today. I mean, fixed rates right now, I, you know, you you probably could get for 12 months you could probably right now get three, four. Do I hear five percent? So yeah, it, it is. You have to be active. We're very active planners at the estate planning team, and we've been trying to you know, educate our clients to say, uh, "How do you make?" You know, that sometimes it's the little things that that make your overall plan better. We also try to keep people on the right path in other words right now there's something else going on too so you have the republicans who have now got control of the house of representatives but it's a very slight you know majority but so all of a sudden now they're coming out and you can read the headlines about how they're going to abolish the IRS and they're gonna, uh, you know, they're gonna stop the weaponization of the IRS and not allow them to hire 87,000, you know, IRS agents that are gonna be knocking on your and your mom's door to, to put you behind bars because they think you, you've been fraudulent in your last 20 years of tax returns. It's really a scare tactic and really none of that is going to happen. All right. Um, first of all, th- 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 there was um, th- the first bill that th- that they put out was called the Family and Small Business and Taxpayer Protection Act, and that was again the way they headlines and the way the politicians said it was we you know we're not going to let the IRS add eighty seven thousand IRS agents. Well, that is a big lie. All right. There was never going to be 87,000 IRS agents hired for audit purposes. What what wasn't a lie was that the the IRA bill, the omnibus package, did you know provide 80 billion dollars of funding for the IRS. But it, it, I don't believe there's any language in the bill that said that means also that they, they were going to hire 87,000 IRS agents. I, I don't think you'll find that language in the bill. But yet every talking head it, you know gets back to that. By the way, where did that 87,000 number really come from? Um, well, it, it came from a study that the, that the IRS has been working on for years. you know to, to deal with the attrition problem they saw coming down the pipe. one with the baby boomers retiring, then you had the great resignation and you had all these other issues and they saw the writing on the wall. okay so at one point um, they were saying of the 80,000 workers in the IRS, 50,000 they were estimating were going to be leaving in the next 10 years. So so part of the 87,000 number was the idea that yeah we've got to replace the 50,000 that are leaving And then maybe add a few more because, you know what? We've got 350 million Americans right now. There's probably 150 million individual tax returns being filed every year. That's not adding the corporation tax returns. So do you think maybe the IRS needs a little bit more staffing? Do you think most Americans would like a little bit more uh, IRS people to answer the phone when they call? Do you think that the IRS should should have a better encryption, better protection, and and, and update their software and their and their programs so we can't have these crooks sitting in Russia or China or Korea or wherever they're sitting and filing millions of fraudulent tax returns because they're stealing our identities and filing a return quickly to get their income to get the earned income tax refund. Yes, that's what the $80 billion was going to go for. It wasn't just, you don't hear too much about it. All you hear is about how the 87,000 weaponized IRS agents were going to be knocking down your door. Now, don't take my word for it, all right? If you're working with a CPA or an enrolled agent, call them up and ask them and say, hey, Mr. CPA, do I need to be worried about an audit on my income tax returns, because I have been fraudulent in the past, and see what they say all right um, so and and the second thing too is I think that these the, 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 the there's no chance that this bill that the house GOP present there's it, no chance it's going to pass. All right. The Senate, which is controlled by the, the Democrats, aren't going to pass this. And President Biden has come out and said he ain't going to he's going to veto it if it did get to his desk somehow. All right. Now, the second one that they passed was the Fair Tax Act. And this is where they say they're going to abolish the national income tax, the payroll tax and the estate tax and replace it with the single national consumption tax on purchases of goods and services at a rate of 23% of the gross payments. (sighs) All right. Do you understand that's not going to happen? And it's, you know, is this really, you know, why are they even, why are they spending their time even passing a bill like that? there, There is no it's there's no realistic way that that would ever pass a bipartisan you know in a bipartisan measure all right um and even the name the fair tax act um well that leads it to one of the you know the one of the uh estate planning team axioms i always talk about the only fair tax for all would be no tax at all okay and because you could, you know, a consumption tax, a sales tax, national sales tax, basically. Well, is that fair to everyone? Um, see, it just gives fodder for the Democrats to come out with their headlines saying that this plan would shift the federal tax burden onto the American middle class and the working, the hardworking people. It's not going to really punish the wealthy, okay, because the wealthy tend to spend a smaller percentage of their income than lower income consumers. It, it, you know, in other words, if, if you know if you have if somebody who's making a million dollars a year versus somebody making $100,000 a year, and they're buying the same purchase, the, the same $100 purchase, okay? Well, obviously, the tax as a percentage of the income is much lower for the wealthy than the unwealthy the lower-income class. So that's one reason why the Democrats have a good argument saying that's why a, a consumption tax like this isn't fair. And and I think you can make other cases. You could talk about the geo, the the geo penalty, like the salt. Remember when the salt cap with $10,000 was put in? All the blue states, you know, California, New York, New Jersey, they are saying, hey, it's unfair to us because we have high uh, 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 property taxes. And now, you know, in our state, so now we can no longer deduct those property taxes on our federal return. So they were saying how unfair it was compared to a state that has lower property taxes. Right, so you have those types of issues. But let me, but let's, let's just say you even have two situations, two taxpayers with the same income. Okay, um, but let's say couple one, a married couple, no children. And let's say, uh, case two, married couple with three children. And let's say they're making the exact same gross pay. Well, which one do you think is going to have a higher Consumer sales tax, purchase on purchases. The one with no kids or the family with three kids. So, so how fair, how friendly, how how pro-family would a national consumption tax be? And then you can say, well, Mark, well, what they'll do is they'll they'll uh, they'll make it so the the families they don't have to pay that national sales tax on on things like like in Ohio we don't pay sales tax on food. OK, so if you start excluding, can you imagine the lobbying that's going to be going on in Congress, you know, and and, and you know, all the you know, what's going to be considered uh, exempt or non-exempt? OK, um, you, you could also say, uh, what about services? OK, so is going to the doctor going to be a taxable? Well, the family with three kids have to go to a doctor's a lot more than the couple with no kids. Or you can say, well, no, that's going to Mark, they're not going to tax that. Okay, well, how about, you know, going to Disneyland? Okay, that's certainly not going to be exempt from the consumption tax. So how much is the cost of, you know, you get my point. But even besides that, the other reason why I'm saying is that it's not a real estate is how could it ever be implemented, a national sales tax? I mean, I I worked for the first fifteen years of my career. That's all I did was corporate, state, and local sales tax returns. You know, for multinational. You know, for companies that that fund all. You know, file in all fifty states. I know the problems with sales taxes, and I know how people try to avoid paying them. How how the you know and 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 so so now you're going to put all that burden. On the businesses that now they have to collect the right amount of sales tax and get it timely paid over to the government. And if there is no IRS, which is part of the bill, who's going to watchdog it? Do you think perhaps... That if there was no watchdog making sure that the sales tax, the, the new national sales tax, is being properly uh, c- you know, collected and, and timely paid to the government? If there's no watchdog, do you think perhaps that some businesses might not comply? And if they did comply, how many cash registers do we have in this country right now? Not only in the brick and mortar stores, but how about in the cloud? So how long is it going to be where you, the software is written to, to, to upgrade all of these cash registers that now have to calculate a national sales tax? Can you imagine? All right. So I think... So oh, let me get off that soapbox. Um, all right. Let's see how much I got a few minutes. The last thing I wanted to talk about was... Um, You know, last week's show I talked about is the four percent rule broken, and I I I said because let's remember the the Benjins you know four percent rule was based on a thirty year time period, a five percent rate of return, and a three and a half percent inflation handle. And under those circumstances, if you start with a million dollars the first year, you could take out 40000 you can add 3.5% inflation to that 40000 every year, and by the end of the 30 years, your million-dollar portfolio is approaching zero. All right, but now we've seen so many stories that the 4% rule is broken. Well, so I went back, so if you go back and listen to last week's podcast show, I said, well, let's modify, let's look over the last 30 years, 1993 through the end of 2022 and let's add in the actual S&P 500 50% the US aggregate bond index 50% the you know, 50-50 allocation that NC and, and but instead of just assuming that that was going to do 5% overall um, let's actually add in the real 30 year numbers to see is the thirty-year rule broken after last year, where we had the dismal performance in the 50-50 portfolio, down sixteen percent, as well as a much higher inflation, six and a half percent, than what Benjamin was using, three and a half percent. Okay, but I, this week I also, though, added that in the actual CPI inflation rates for the last thirty years. Okay, um, and it, it, by the way, in in in, all, in the last 30 years, only one year was it slightly negative. And that was um, 2009, where it was 0.4% negative. Other than that, it was all positive. But, okay, but if I look at the, so, so how did that do? So is the 4% rule broken when we throw in last year's dismal year, plus in that time period, four recessions? Now, I'm calling the 2022 a recession, maybe not. But anyways, yeah, it did just fine. So the actual, if you would have started with a million dollars and started taking out in a, you know, in the 40000 plus inflation on the actual CPI and the actual rate of return on the 50-50 portfolio, not only would you be able to keep up with inflation, but at the end of the 30 years, you're not approaching zero. You still have $2.26 million in your portfolio. I'm not so sure the 4% rule is broken. Have a good weekend.